You're listening to Monocle on Saturday, first broadcast on the 29th of January 2022 on Monocle 24. Georgina Godwin broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Well, today we are going to start the programme in Kiev, joining our producer on the ground there, Paige Reynolds. After that, uh, Jen Otter Bickdijk is here. She is an author and the Professor of Popular Music at the BIMM Institute. She'll be having a look through the newspapers with us. Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, will round up the events of the week. Elsewhere in the field of human conflict, we learned that Chile had declared war on Blur, which is not one we saw coming. And we'll also hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. I found myself stumbling out a ridiculous response. Uh, no, well, um, uh, uh, I'm going home um, um, to my partner, um, uh, my husband. We'll hear about all sorts of awkward moments for our editor-in-chief. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky addressed foreign media last night. He said he did not rule out a full-blown war with Russia, but added Ukraine was not a sinking Titanic and accused Washington and media of fueling panic that weighed on the economy while there were no tanks in the streets. He spoke after Russian President Vladimir Putin said the United States and NATO had not addressed the Kremlin's main security demands in the east-west standoff over Ukraine, but that Moscow was ready to keep talking. Meanwhile, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson will step up diplomatic efforts over the Ukraine crisis with a visit to the region next week and a call with Vladimir Putin in a bid to avoid bloodshed. This comes as the inquiry into COVID-19 lockdown breaking gatherings in Downing Street that might determine Johnson's future could be further delayed after the police asked for the report to make only minimal reference to those events. And Italy's moved closer to electing its first ever female president after five days of stalemate and repeated parliamentary ballots forced party leaders to seek a compromise solution. Political sources said a likely candidate was Elisabetta Baloni, a career diplomat who heads the secret services, with Justice Minister Marta Cartabia also in the reckoning. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Let's begin the programme in Kiev and join our correspondent on the ground, Paige Reynolds. Paige, last night, as we've been reporting in our headlines, there was a press conference for foreign journalists. Now, to have a, a, a conference just for those members of the press from abroad suggests that there must be quite a few of them there. Has that been your experience? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, obviously, there was a press conference last night for specifically for foreign journalists. Uh, that was... Um, I think to spread the message that we've got to make sure we have some level-headedness about what's going on here. Um, I'm sure people have seen the headlines. Zelensky essentially said, don't panic, please don't create that kind of atmosphere. Um, don't have an opinion on Donbass unless you've been to the contact line. Um, he's definitely conceded to the fact that, you know, there is a threat, but whether that threat has escalated uh, massively in the last sort of few months is a little bit 
tenuous. Um, he said, sort of rightly so, that analysts have been saying war has been imminent since November, but you know we're looking at February next week. Uh, so some interesting threads coming out of that. But yes, as you said, of course, to have this conference suggests that there are quite a few foreign journalists uh, in Kiev. I'm not seeing TV crews all over the place, um, but that would also sort of be a little redundant as war is, of course, much further to the east. Um, I was up at uh, Maidan Ezelezhnosti, Independence Square. Uh, yesterday, I was up at the memorial for the people who had, uh, the protesters who died during Euromaidan in 2013-2014. There were a few cameras here and there taking some atmosphere shots, but nothing that felt like the foreign press was sort of quote-unquote descending on the city, but I think that is going to happen the next few days. Uh, we've bumped into a few of the CNN crew here. Um, they said there's more of them sort of flying in uh, imminently, and ditto with the NPR team. Uh, they said there's quite a, a lot of them to come in the next few days too. So I think next week is when uh, there's going to be a lot of press in the capital. But for now, it, it seems that it's not it's not too hectic. Mm. Just back to that presser for a moment. Did anything that Zelensky say resonate with your experience so far, this whole idea that there is no need for panic, that in fact the, the country is not the Titanic, as he said? Yeah, it's quite interesting. I think it's quite difficult when you say don't panic. Uh, I think people assume you mean there's no threat, which is not actually the case. I think when people say here, we're not panicking. They're saying that because they understand the threat and the threat has been ongoing for the past eight years. So I think we've definitely interviewed a lot of people here who are saying, yes, we understand the threat uh, of Russia. We've understood the threat of Russia for a very long time. Uh, we don't believe it's escalating in the sense that perhaps it is being portrayed uh, in the international media. So I think that that is kind of the key takeaway. And that really is the impression uh, we're getting here, Chris and I have been on the ground interviewing people who are in sort of the disinformation sector, interviewing journalists, interviewing people from the International Red Cross. And generally, people are quite level-headed. That doesn't mean people aren't getting prepared, but I think it just means that people aren't panicking right now. Mm. Now, I know that you basically hit the ground running. You've been incredibly busy since you've been there. Uh, what's on your agenda for today? So we've got quite an exciting uh, agenda today. What we're doing is we're trying to get out of the city to go to the uh, volunteer uh, territorial defence training. So this is for reservists, this is for people who have signed up who are doctors, lawyers, work in IT, and they've signed up signed up to the uh, reserve army. And there's training every Saturday. So we're trying to get out to that training just to observe it and also just to speak to a few of these sort of ordinary people who have signed up to do, you know, a, a, a pretty heroic thing. Uh, and then we're also hoping a little later to get to uh, another training that's being held in the city uh, run by the Ukrainian Women's Guard. This is specifically uh, sort of an urban survival how-to for women in the case of, of war. Um, uh, this, the training comprises, you know, survival in the city, how to pack an alarm bag, some basic first aid, how to build a home fortress, how to store and hide things, and also how to sort of plan to leave and escape from the city. So that will be really interesting, again, to just speak to some of the women there, hopefully, and get a sense for, for why they're doing this and just the level of, I guess, the, the level of threat as, as they perceive it right now. Paige, thank you very much indeed. I know that we'll be hearing from you again live during the Foreign Desk. Uh, when Andrew Muller will be in the studio speaking to a host of voices from the region. That's Paige Reynolds there in Kiev.
You're tuned to Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin, and now it's time to have a browse through this morning's newspapers. I'm pleased to say that joining me today is Jen Otter Bickerdyke, who is an author and professor of popular music at the BIMM Institute. And we'll get into what that is a little bit later. Good morning to you, Jen. Hello. Thank you so much for having me again. So nice to see your smiling face <laughs> on a Saturday. It's lovely to have you here. Uh, and a big shout out to our cafe, actually. It's lovely to have coffee from oh. the Monocle Cafe with us, too. And yes. today, croissants, not walnut buns. <laughs> yes, much needed. Much needed. Uh, Jen, we were just hearing from Paige in Kiev there uh, that the president says there's no need to panic. But that really contrasts with what the US military top brass are saying. Now, there was a press conference yesterday mm-hmm. uh, in Washington and, and really some quite alarming uh, um, uh, statements coming out from Miller. Absolutely. And do you know what is so interesting about this is the word choice he has. He said... If the um, the different things that are put together, the artillery, the ballistic missiles, the air forces, the package of stuff that has been has been put together, he says if this was unleashed on Ukraine, it would be significant, very significant. And the word significant, I don't think has that much power, but then he follows this up with saying it would be horrific with a significant, um, he loves that word, significant amount of casualties. And he goes on to say, you'd have to go back to the Cold War to see something of this magnitude. And I mean, what's extraordinary, though, is that, of course, it is being, and understandably so, it is being played down within Ukraine. Uh, But also you're seeing countries, particularly Germany, uh, not really engaging with it to that extent. Uh, at the moment. Of course, history plays a a large part in this. But also France and Germany presumably have exactly the same uh, intelligence as as America and and the US and and, and NATO. Now, Germany was saying, well, they can't see any kind of backroom preparations. So, for instance, no fuel tankers behind Mm. these hundreds of thousands of of troops that are massed. But in fact, now uh, there are reports coming out that there are um, lots of preparations to be seen, that in fact there's, there's blood banks and and preparations for many, many wounded uh, soldiers, Russian soldiers, that would be uh, being prepared. It's just the wording that they're using. I mean, it sounds very calm and it sounds like they're not trying to get fear. But then when you actually dive into it a little more, like you're saying, I mean, one of the things that that Miley said, too, is the deployment of more than 100,000 Russian troops to the border was the largest of anything they've seen in recent memory. That is, like you were saying, they're obviously preparing on a massive scale for death and destruction. Mm. And I think using those two words I just said, that makes it sound much more serious and scary. And they're trying not to scare people. Mm. It just, I think I said to you before we went on air, it just reminds me so much. I'm having flashbacks to to Afghanistan last summer, which that's completely fallen out of the news. Mm. And I feel like here it's party gate, party gate, party gate. Is that a distraction thing to take us away from this horrible crisis that is about to erupt? Yeah, although I see that Partygate is now conflating with this because Mm -hmm. Boris Johnson, uh, in his typical way, is saying that he is, in fact, going to go to Ukraine and he's going to have a call with Putin. Oh, Uh, So this is, you know, oh, dead cat over there. Mm. (laughs) Here we are. Have a look. Have a look. Uh, Quite, quite extraordinary. Now, we are going to go into this in much more detail in the Foreign Desk. It's going to be live today. That's at noon London time. And uh, Andrew Muller will be reconnecting with our our team on the ground. That's Chris Chermak and Paige Reynolds, who are both in Kiev. In fact, as Paige was saying, actually leaving the city today, uh, going out a little way to uh, spend the day with some of the reserve troops. Uh, Now, I think it's time to hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. It was the end of the day. 
I was tired, I was at the physio, and the man looking at my knee had me lying on his bench as he tried to ascertain why my niggling pain from running just won't go away. That's why at 7pm, after no doubt seeing endless clients, he found himself trying to make small talk with someone who he'd only met for the first time 30 minutes before. What are you doing after this? Going home to the family, he asked. It was a nice, general question, but the trouble was I didn't have a simple answer, and perhaps because I was lying down with his hand on my knee, I found myself stumbling out a ridiculous response. Uh, no, well, um, uh, uh, I'm going home um, um, to my partner, um, uh, my husband. And then, just to make sure I made both of us feel super awkward, I added, sorry, what the hell was I doing? Luckily, he simply replied cool and continued to sweetly enthuse about how amazing knees are and how we would soon sort my meniscus strain. I must say that, while irksome, having a fully-fledged sport injury is sort of, well... A bit grown up. It's funny, however, when your power of speech just vanishes. And I've put people in the same predicament too, except worse. I may even have told you this story, but here goes again. I was near my house and saw a man I know through work. He's in his 30s. He was walking towards me with a much older gentleman. They were talking and striding along at pace, and when they got to me, they marched past before I had a chance to say anything. By coincidence, two days later, I saw him again while I was grabbing lunch with two Monocle colleagues. This time, he was alone. Hello, I said, not sensing the trouble ahead. I saw you the other night with your dad. I would have said hello, but you seemed to be in a hurry. Yes, we were late for the theatre, but that's not my dad, that's my boyfriend. There was no linguistic escape ladder, no reverse manoeuvre I could perform, so I said, voice now strained and rather high-pitched, Where were you going? To which he rightly replied, I just told you, to the theatre, with my boyfriend. I have replayed that scene in my head many times, especially as, once we were out of sight, my colleagues insisted that it was one of the worst faux pas that they had ever heard, and have regularly taunted me about it ever since. But why do these small moments become so uncomfortable, so ingrained? A little while back, someone asked me if I would like to attend a dinner being held in London in their honour. Of course, I said. Then the invitation arrived by email, and the actual host, who doesn't know me, generously added that she would be delighted if I would bring my wife. No doubt her mind was on something else when she typed those words, but when you don't have a wife on hand for such moments, replying is suddenly a bit tricky. In the end, I went for, I'm sorry, I don't have a wife, but would a husband do? And then, as soon as I sent it, I felt mean. It would have been simpler to ask him indoors, actually, to just wear crinolines for one night. Now, I'm not trying to make anything out of these incidents other than a good column. No malice was at play on anyone's part in any of them. They're all just moments where, for a few seconds, someone, me included, made a presumption that turned out to be slightly off-kilter. And also moments when you find yourself just not wanting to explain yourself all over again. But there are parts of society where letting this stuff go just won't wash anymore. 
you read stories of standoffs in academia over the use of a single word that one professor has deemed offensive. Or something said in a workplace that, yes, could have been more inclusive, but which has now been labelled as an indicator of a company where microaggressions are tolerated. Who knows, but could what's actually at play here just be an example of an attempt at niceness gone awry? The fact is, we're all capable of saying things that land with the elegance of a shot duck, a plump one, on a pavement. Once we accept that, well, I think we can all sleep a bit better at night. Many thanks to Andrew Tuck there. And this is Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin and with me is Jen Otter-Bickerdyke, who's an author and a professor of popular music. Uh, Jen, uh, Andrew was talking there about, you know, how easy it is to misinterpret things or how quick people are to take offence. And indeed, how the meaning of things, I think, can change over time. Now, this week, of course, we saw Holocaust Memorial Day. And one book that hasn't stood the, the test of time, it would seem, is Art Spiegelman's work, Mouse. Tell us about this. Well, I have to say this was very upsetting for me to see, and that is that a Tennessee school board recently voted to ban Mouse, which is a two-part hardcover. It's a graphic novel, and it tells the story. It basically is a little boy asking his dad about his memories of being a Holocaust survivor, and it's told as a comic book, so it's frame by frame, and the Jews are portrayed as mice, and the Nazis are portrayed as cats. And I actually read this book as a master's student at San Francisco State University, so it's a text that we used, and I find it really actually terrifying that this is being banned at schools. It won a Pulitzer Prize in 1992, I should point out. And I think one of the reasons it has had such an impact is because it's easy to remember because of the way that it is set out in the frames. Mice and cats, obviously, there's a relationship there that we know well. Um, but it, the 10-member board in McMinn County in Tennessee, they chose to remove mouse from the curriculum because of profanity and nudity that was within the text of the book. Which is quite extraordinary. And this is, a, this is from a story from the Washington Post, but in fact, it's, it's widely reported uh, in, 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 in many places. Uh, what Spiegelman himself said about this? You know, he said so many things here that I could probably spend like half an hour, but he's he said it's part of a continuum and just a harbinger of things to come. The control of people's thought is essential to all of this. And he calls it a red alert of where we're going. Um, and he says it's not it's not just how dare they deny the Holocaust. They'll deny anything, he mm. says. Mm. And I think that that is just especially right now, you know, being an American fake news, Donald Trump thinking he's going to get in again in 2024, everything that's going on, it just, it's absolutely chilling to think that this is going to be taken away from an, an eighth, you know, eighth grade curriculum. Yeah. And in fact, let, let's just talk about uh, about that a little bit more in the light of Spotify, mm. because there's an awful lot going oh, on there God. too about people denying. So we're talking here about Josh Rogan. Tell us tell us who he is for, for the very small amount of people who will have never heard of him and what it is he's saying and the row it sparked off. So 
Joe Rogan is, the New York Times calls him one of the most consumed media products on the planet. And Georgiana, it's probably true because in 2019, Joe Rogan had, I'm glad you're sitting down, over 200 million downloads of his podcasts a month. Wow, that puts Meet the Writers into a whole new light. Yeah, I was going to say, and, you know, it just, he is this product, he probably is, hands down, the most successful podcaster of all time. And Spotify signed a deal with him for $100 million. And one of the things, he has been an avid COVID denier. Last year, actually, when he got COVID himself, he, he well, for a long time, actually, let me back up, he's been telling his listeners not to get the vaccine, that it's fake, it's not, it's not been tested enough, this, that, and the other. And when he himself got COVID, he took a drug called Inver, Invermectin. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Which is for worms, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It says against parasites and humans. It has a t- tapeworm vibes, doesn't it? <laughs> Extraordinary. So he, so he was saying that he took that, and that's what healed him of the of COVID, and that was there's a massive backlash then. Now, more recently, he had an episode of the show on where he had Dr. Robert Malone, and Dr. Robert Malone is very controversial in COVID because he has said all kinds of things that the vaccine is is bad for you, and there's a massive backlash against it, including 270 letters from doctors, healthcare professionals, and scientists to spot. Spotify asking to get rid of Rogan on the back of this. Mm. So now tell us that where Neil Young and Joni Mitchell feed into this round. Yeah, right. So we have Neil Young, who, you know, activist, amazing songwriter for decades and decades. He just could not stand by and be on the same platform as Rogan spreading literally dangerous news to people. Danger- I say news with quote fingers. Uh, dangerous things like this to people. And he went to Spotify and says, either Rogan goes or I go. And Spotify has invested all this money in Rogan. They're like, bye-bye, Mr. Young. So, and, and just to give put it in numbers, Neil Young has 6.1 million, you know, downloads and listeners a month. That doesn't even touch the sides of where Joe Rogan is. Mm. And following in his steed is Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell followed Neil Young. She just could not stand by and have all this misinformation, dangerous, dangerous misinformation Misinformation spread by Rogan. So she's asked for her music as well to be pulled from Spotify. And similarly, uh, Jody has 3.7 million monthly listeners. So even between the two of these absolute icons, 10 million, under 10 million listeners a month, again, not even coming to touch the sides of what Rogan has. Which is extraordinary. And I, I wonder who it would take to force Spotify to, to make a difference? Because I guess there's very little crossover between Joni Mitchell fans and Rogan fans. Exactly. I mean, I would say that most... I'm making a broad brushstroke here, but I would I would guess that most Rogan fans are probably going to be under the age of 50 and would probably not have no idea who either of these people were. If they were, they'd be like, old fogey, my mom and dad or my grandparents listen to. So, you know, they probably see it as even more rebellious that I'm listening to Joe Rogan. I think in a way it makes Rogan even more of like a cult. He's not really a cult figure of that many listeners, but that much more of a, an outsider figure to look up to. Mm. No, I mean, you've written extensively on popular culture and particularly about musicians. Your latest book is all about Britney Spears. Um, Who in this day and age could challenge Rogan for that listenership? The only person that I think would have a go would be Adele. I think Adele may be Harry Styles, maybe. 
But with that kind of money, Georgina, that's the thing. With that kind of money invested and that many listeners and that kind of acclaim, there's so much power there. But this is the weird thing about the environment we're living in right now is it seems like he's untouchable, but you just never know. Mm. You because know? one mistake and he's gone. Exactly. That's the whole, exactly. the whole point Andrew's making, I guess. So you, you can be cancelled in a heartbeat. Exactly. Like, it seems like these people, nothing can tip them off the throne, but there could be something right around the corner that we just don't know about. But, you know, as a professor, as an academic working in universities, I mean, we're seeing a lot of people being, I'm going to do horrible air quotes here, yeah, yeah. but cancelled, mm-hmm. uh, particularly academics, for saying something that students d- dislike or take offence at. Uh, it, it must be an awfully uh, narrow uh, and, and scary tightrope that you walk. You know what? I hate it. And actually, if my husband's listening to this, he and I talk about it all the time because he's like, you're being fake and inauthentic to yourself. Because one of the reasons that I was drawn into being an academic is I thought the academy, I sound like such a a jerk saying that, (laughs) but the university setting theoretically is one where you and I can have completely opposite opinions and it's a, I hate to use this this terminology, a safe space, but it's a place where you can say black, I can say white, you can say night, I can say day, and we can talk about it and we can maybe meet in the afternoon, if you would, you know, when I say, you know, morning and night, yeah. we can meet in the middle or not, but leave and be like, you know what, that was a great conversation. I now, I may not agree with you, but I understand where, I understand where you're coming from. And that is, I think, how change happens, is ha- being able to have free and open conversations where you may not be using the quote-unquote right words or you may not understand a concept, but you're not going to be penalized for that. And that's the exact opposite of where we are right now. Yeah. You know, I'm terrified on a day-to-day basis that I'm going to use the wrong terminology or I'm going to not, you know, I'll say LGBTQ+, maybe they've added another letter in there or something like that. I mean, it sounds silly me saying that. And the irony is, this thing that my husband also points out to me a lot, I'm from Santa Cruz in California. I grew up with a lesbian mayor. You know what I mean? I grew up in a very diverse population in San Francisco. You know, most of my life was spent between San Francisco, New York, and L.A. So you could not have gotten more liberal than me. And yet I sometimes feel like I've been cast as like the fuddy-duddy, not having the right vocabulary, the right beliefs. And that, in a way, makes me even more scared to open my mouth and ask questions and be understand where the vernacular is going. And the fact that me, as someone that's an educator, someone that naturally is inclined to have an open mind feels shut down, I think is is terrifying for other people. Absolutely. Well, let's uh, let's join someone now who I feel is probably scared of very little and possibly almost uh, challenging Rogan for his listenership yeah. figures. Here's Andrew Muller. We learned this week that the material now exists, should anybody wish to work with it, for another annoying novelty hit about a change of name in Turkey. Yay. Yay. Wow. Or, to be precise, a change of name of Turkey, which we learned will shortly file to the pertinent authorities the national equivalent of a deed poll, informing the world that it henceforth wishes to be addressed as... Turkia. They don't ever catch on. Not sure if I got it. 
just rewrite it. Well, quite. We learned when we looked into it further that this idea has been percolating a while in the imagination of Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, a statesman whose mind is clearly occupied by loftier concerns than a currency which has roughly halved in value against the euro in a year and inflation nudging 40%. Satirical, yet informative. And we learned that there are a couple of levels at which it's probably fair enough. Turkia is Turkish for Turkey, so there's that, and Turkey, or Turkia, has long disliked the overlap with the ungainly flightless bird of the same name. Yes, that's the one, painting pictures with sound, very good. It is, of course, fair enough that an indisputably great nation like Turkey should weary of this association and of the link to the other connotation of the word Turkey, i.e., it says here, failure, flop, especially a theatrical production that has failed. Do we have a curtain coming down sound effect or something? Not a classic. We learned, however, from looking into it further still, that if the history of national name-changing teaches us anything, and let's face it, it doesn't, but these monologues don't pad themselves out, it might be the lesson about going big or going home. Which is to say that adding a vowel sound and or extra syllable is likely not going to lodge it in the popular imagination. Persia became Iran, Ceylon, Sri Lanka, Siam, Thailand, Swaziland, Eswatini, and everybody remembers those, even if everybody is just justly enraged by the misplaced lowercase e at the start of Eswatini. Can I get an angry mob? We do not, as of this broadcast, have any better ideas, and anyway... That's nobody's business but the Turks. Landing just about stuck, I think. Elsewhere, we learned that a new front had opened up in the standoff between Russia and everyone else. Let's have the Dubliners. The cleaner, the maven, the mucker. The pride of the Irish Navy. We learned that Russia, the zany funsters, had decided to enhance the general gaiety still further by scheduling a naval exercise off the coast of Ireland in February. But that, certain Irish fisher folk were not having this. Fishermen say they're considering plans to peacefully disrupt Russian naval exercises off the southwest coast next month. They say members are worried about their fishing stocks. It is important to note that this Dubliners song does refer to almost exactly this scenario. That's how meticulously researched these things are. One day from the Russian invader Defending our very odd fish we learned that there are no plans as yet for the actual Irish Navy to deploy its patrol boat, the L.E. James Joyce, a real ship, one of Ireland's Samuel Beckett-class vessels, but the very second it does go to sea, we've got an absolute ripper ready to roll about the James Joyce undertaking a tedious, interminable and complicated journey which everybody forced to go along for the ride is only pretending they understand the half of. Elsewhere in the field of human conflict, we learned that Chile had declared war on Blur, which is not one we saw coming. 
To very briskly sum up events about which no sane person cares, Damon Albarn out of Blur said something mildly disobliging about Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift took a swing in retaliation on Twitter.com, and Chile's president-elect and annoying bloke your sister met on Bumble, Gabriel Boric, felt obliged to intervene, reply guying as follows in Ms Swift's direction, as will now be read with all due solemnity by Monocle's DMs on Main, Desk Chief Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Here in Chile, you have a huge group of supporters who know that you write your own songs from the heart. Don't take seriously, guys. They need to insult or lie to get attention. Hugs from the South, Taylor. Hope she sees it, bro. And in UK politics. Hang in there, nearly done. Churning and burning, they yearn for the cup. Yes, it's a song by Cake. It sucks, but it fits, because in UK politics, as we waited to learn if the Prime Minister would receive his just desserts, we did learn of an exciting new addition to the lexicon of political excuses, courtesy of the Conservative MP Connor Burns, seeking to explain how Boris Johnson had apparently accidentally attended his own birthday party during a period of COVID-19 lockdown. He, as far as I can see, he was, in a sense, ambushed with a cake. Which would at least to appear to confirm that this isn't a trifle. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Very many thanks to Andrew. Uh, this is Monocle on Saturday. And of course, Andrew will be back at noon London time with the Foreign Desk and a special edition all about Ukraine. Uh, I'm still uh, joined in the studio by Jen Otter Bickerdyke, who is an author and a professor of popular music at the BIMM Institute. Jen, of course, we were, he was talking about the, the, the musical spat there. Uh, and uh, that's not the only musical spat going oh, on. Oh, girl. By the way, that cake song took me back. Oh, yeah. I was in the 90s there for a second. <laughs> but spe- speaking of musical spats, I I have to tell you, my favorite band of all time, worship, worship to this day, not the Beatles, the Smiths. What are your feelings on the Smiths, Regina? I am just not that depressed. Really? <laughs> Never Girlfriend into in it. a coma? Oh, girl, I like had that on the other day in the bath. I was singing so loudly. My husband shut the door between the uh, living room and the, where the bathroom is. He's like, I can't deal with that. Um, and I have to tell you, when I was single, the number one thing, I had a list, a 50-point checklist of what the man I dated had to have. Number one, must love the Smiths. Strangely, none of those relationships worked out. <laughs> I wonder why. But that leads us to this story, and that is Morrissey. And, of course, him and Johnny Marr were the famous duo, songwriting and uh, ly- lyricist and songwriting duo of the Smiths. They b- broke up spectacularly in 1987. Well, Morrissey has penned an open letter to Johnny Marr on his website telling Johnny Marr to stop talking about him in interviews and saying that Johnny Marr is using Morrissey as clickbait to get people to, you know, to, to tap on different links and interviews with Johnny Marr. Johnny Marr has a new record out right now, which he is promoting. And it's just 
It's absolutely hilarious, I think, like re- like reading. It's very, very sad as a Smiths fan, but then very, very funny, too. It's like these are like this is a 62-year-old grown man saying these things in a public forum. Um, and, you know, Britney's saying the British press's appetite for such cruel and savage, savage remarks about him is just unsatiable. And the cruel and savage remarks he's saying that Johnny is making about him, are you ready for it? He cites an interview that Johnny just did in Uncut Magazine. Here's the savage remark. I say that with sarcasm. This is from Mar. It won't come as any surprise when I say that I'm really close with everyone I've worked with, except for the obvious one. That's the savage remark. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. I know. You've actually interviewed Johnny Mar, haven't you? Oh, oh, my gosh, yeah. So just dig, if you will, this picture. Since the age of 12... Up until, you know, up until fairly recently, wallpapered room of Smith's posters, like favorite, favorite, love, 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 love. And about eight months ago, I got to interview him on Zoom. And you know how the name pops up before the face does? His little name popped up and I was like, OMG, OMG. As I like flapping my arms, like, oh my God. And then he comes on. I'm still flapping my arms. I'm like, oh my God, it's you, Johnny Moore. It's you, Johnny Moore. And... (laughs) I have to say, and I'm sure you're like this, You for, I forgot that he was the man I've worshipped for literally, I've known him, quote unquote, longer than I've known pretty much anyone else in my life. The sweetest, kindest, most generous, down-to-earth human. And he did talk about Morrissey to me, and it was nothing but nice, wonderful, flattering comments. So when I saw this, I was like, oh, Morrissey, get a grip, child. Um, and one of the things, the other things that, that Ma responded, this made me laugh. Uh, Johnny wrote on Twitter, an open letter hasn't really been a thing since 1953. It's all social media now. Even Donald J. Trump had that one down. Also, this fake news business about a bit 2021. Yeah, I just think it's I just it's hilarious. It really is. I just wanted before we go, I just wanted to ask you a couple of things about. First of all, what is you are a um, a, a, a professor of popular music mm-hmm. at the BIMM Institute. What's BIMM? The BIM Institute. We are the we are the largest provider of creative arts education in the world. We have eight schools altogether. So we started out just doing music, and now we have a dance school acting, film, we are encompassing everything. So it's quite exciting. I absolutely absolutely love it. And I feel very lucky to have a job there. And what is the coolest thing about it is that it's not just people being like, I've studied, I have a BA in music, and now I'm going to go teach about music. Everybody at our university is a practitioner. So some of the people, I mean, um, for example, Bernard Butler, who was in Suede, he teaches at BIM. And that's another one. Like every time he walks by me in the hallway, I'm like, oh, my God, it's Bernard Butler still now. It's very, very, very silly. <laughs> Which is extraordinary because you have written these books about some of our modern icons. I mean, for instance, so you've written this book um, uh, subtitled A Manifesto from Musicians and Fans called Why Vinyl Matters. You've also written, though, about uh, Nico from the uh, uh, Velvet Underground as well as Britney. I have. I've I've spanned them all, I have to say. Uh, and I think the key thing for me is that I never stop being a fan. And I know that might sound really, really silly, but when I was writing Why Vinyl Matters, that the way that I picked people to interview for that was people that were fans of vinyl records. And similarly to the Johnny Marr story, when you get people talking about something they're passionate about, it just it falls away like the fame or what they've done, and you just nerd out with them. So for for why vinyl matters, for example, I went and interviewed Gaz Coombs, and that was 
hilarious because he was quite hungover. He'd been in the studio the night before. And we got on this weird trajectory about how much we both love Madonna. And he and I were going back and forth being like, no, but the remix of Get Into the Groove. No, 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 child. La Isla Bonita. And I just, you forget that you're talking to, to Gaz Coombs. It's just like, it's just like this homie you're talking to in the pub. Same thing with that book with Fatboy Slim. I went down, Norman wanted me to interview him at his house. And it was exactly the same thing. You know, he and I started getting into it about the clash and Joy Division versus New Order. It's This is, you know, a, a big one because I wrote my PhD on Joy Division. But the secret is I like New Order better, which is so <laughs> uncool to say. And I realized I'm like, I'm sitting here having a feud, a feud with one of the most acclaimed DJs ever who changed popular music. So that's really what it's about is being passionate and being a fan. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, uh, You Are Beautiful and You Are Alone was your your, your uh, Nico book. Uh, and then one that, in fact, listeners can can hear about on uh, Meet the Writers, because you, you've, you've been a guest, I think, uh, Being Brittany, Pieces of a Modern Icon. Uh, and that, uh, of course, came out just as Brittany's court order was being lifted, her conservancy. Yeah, I think we. I came in, or you were my very first of... Dun, 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 96 interviews I did for that. And that was crazy. It like, came out literally the day before the court order was lifted. And that has been... That's been a really interesting one because the the media mediation is that a word like making me Britney is now a media figure more than an artist if that makes any sense and I think that the way like right now they're talking about a fifteen million dollar tell all book deal for her although she's not said it it's all just like buzzing around her. It's going to be interesting to see if she ever returns to being an artist, a performer, or if it's always going to be she is almost better known now for being this kind of troubled soul, if you would. Mm. And, and, um, and she, you know, I got interviewed for in Germany two days ago. And one thing that was fascinating is that she's the perpetuator, though, of a lot of it. You know, she's going on Instagram half naked. She's up there. Her sister, Jamie, just put out a book recently. So the two of them have beef going back and forth now. Uh, on through social media. And so, you know, it, if she wanted to truly disappear and be left alone, she could. I'm obsessed with writing a book about Tracy Chapman, the singer from the late 80s, early 90s. You cannot find a trace of this woman anywhere. Like, she has disappeared. Like, she wants to be left alone. If Britney wanted to, you could, mm. you know. I don't think Brittany really wants to be left alone. No, no, I'm sure you're absolutely right. Uh, Jen, thanks so much for, for coming in to talk to us. Uh, and Jen's book's available. And do uh, do check out Meet the Writers to, to hear a, a much longer interview with her where she talks about her work. That's Jen Otter Bickerdyke. And I'm Georgina Godwin. That's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Many thanks to our studio engineer, uh, Nora Hull, and to our producer, Marcus Hippie. Uh, that's it. Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. 